John, Chris, look yes. who we have on the show today. Boyd and Beth Morrison in the lawless Whoa. land. This is going to be fun. Yeah. This is the first. I know. We've had really? siblings separately, but never together. So That's this right. Is yeah. well, well, let's see how this goes. Yeah. yeah. I thought you had Lee and Andrew. Uh, no. Oh, yeah. You know what? Yeah, we did. I was thinking of Lee Goldberg and um and Todd Goldberg. Todd. You're right. We have had, we have not had a male and female set of siblings on the show, so it's still historical. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't even know any other um, brother sister thriller writer. Um, team. We know we know sister sister, and we know brother yeah. brother. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, brother sister. Nope. Yeah. Well, blazing a trail. Well, good thing somebody's here to keep Boyd honest. Well, <laughs> with that, does. so let's let's talk about this new book of yours, Lawless Land. It's your first novel collaboration. And so with that in mind, can the two of you collaborate on a quick mm -hmm. overview of what our readers can expect in this new novel of yours? Yeah, we've been practicing speaking every other word. So that's how we're going to do this. All right. <laughs> Nobody's going to see this episode anyway, so don't no. worry. Just <laughs> a lot of editing going to happen. Yeah. Oh. yeah. What was the question? No. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Did we, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell this story of how I got the idea of writing with Beth, which was like many things in my life came from my wife. Uh, I was mm -hmm. wrapping up working on the Oregon file series with Clive and looking at doing something else. And I was thinking of different genres and possibilities. And one thing I was thinking of was historical thrillers because I love books about World War II and, and I know a lot about that era, but I didn't know if that was the right way to go and I was talking to my wife about it and she said well if you want to write historical fiction well, you've got a built-in co-author and yeah. I said no joke <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh, oh we're being honest and on that we're being honest uh, today okay <laughs> your sister who is a world expert on the middle ages and I went Oh yeah, I guess. Oh her. She's an author herself. She's written a bunch of nonfiction books about her her exhibits at the Getty, and yeah. she has a PhD in art history and and is an expert medievalist. Yeah. And I thought that's actually a good idea. Yeah. And because I would never have written a book in this era without her, because I don't know, I didn't, I knew a little based on what she's educated me on but I not to the depth I would need to write this story mm. so I called Beth and what was it like getting that call Beth awesome <laughs> oh really <laughs> yeah nice. because I had always worked with Boyd a bit on his books like when he wanted to talk through something or whatever I have a, a good eye for detail and scene continuity and and what is logistically possible and stuff and so he called me and he said Hey, would you write to like 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 to write a book with me about the Middle Ages? And I was like, "We're done. That's all you need to say. I'm sold." <laughs> I'll write it. You just promote it. So it took like you know a nanosecond or two, and um, then we went from there. And you know, we decided we wanted to use a lot of you know my knowledge and medieval tropes, and so we were like, "Okay, it's going to be about a knight errant, and there's going to be a damsel in distress, and the." <laughs> 
the, um, my specialty is medieval illuminated manuscript. So I'm like a medieval illuminated manuscript has to be at the heart of the book. And so we kind of took those basic building blocks and wrote a really, I think fascinating and really kind of cool plot around it with twists and turns and secret passages and jousts and everything you'd expect from the middle ages. Which was why I was so stinking excited when I first saw oh, yeah. <laughs> that you guys were putting this together because I love the middle age uh, period. Um, so I took one class in college, which was warfare in the middle ages. And let me tell you, that was the hardest class outside of <laughs> advanced, you know, organic chemistry, I think, because man, was she detailed about this sort of stuff. So what I kind of remember was, and we're talking about the, the 1350 period. I mean, you guys, this book starts out 1351. We're just at the tail end of, of the pestilence. And so what I can remember is the average size male was somewhere in the five foot two to five foot six range, right? And so given how they pretty much had two types of metal to work with, heavy and heavier, how were guys that size wearing hundred plus pounds was there combat with true hand-to-hand -hand combat was it a lot slower and and a little more plod like than what we typically see in like the movies well you know it's interesting you mentioned that because boyd and i recently took jousting lessons ourselves yeah. And we put on medieval armor and we held the shields and we had the great helms on and we had the um, lances. And I have to admit, it was a bit much for me. Um, I think it was a little bit easier for Boyd physically, but I kind of think of it as think of like a hundred Tom Cruises running around, right? <laughs> like he does everything himself. He's an incredible so yeah. the stunt guy and he wears heavy stuff all the time and does that. So just imagine all the medieval knights being like Tom Cruises. Mm. I, you know, I, I, I like this fact because uh, I would be a giant if I was transported back to that time. <laughs> Five foot nine. Yeah. yeah. So, well, so I probably I'm the king the now. State. I'm five foot eight and I have red hair. I was oh, yeah. out of there. Oh my man. God. I'm a Viking woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm six five. So I'd be like Goliath, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you, you would be a legend in that time period. Yeah, for sure. The, the mountain the mountain that rides. Yeah, you're you, the that, mountain. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, boy, do you want to add any of that jousting uh, story? Yeah, well, I. It was definitely a challenge, and and I think I've I've done, in the research I've done. I don't think they were quite that short. I think they were definitely shorter than the average person now. But but there were still big people, and I think Beth could talk about that in terms of the historical record. But um, there, there's actually a video if you can find it on YouTube that shows uh, three different guys. Um, doing an obstacle course. One of them is wearing full fire gear, uh, like a firefighter. Yeah, one is right. wearing full combat gear that a soldier would have. And one was wearing medieval armor. And Ooh. they did the entire obstacle course racing uh -huh. each other. And I think the guy in medieval armor came in first or second. Oh my gosh. Really? And, and so it shows that, you know, it's, it's definitely heavy, but you know, current soldiers wear a lot of heavy stuff as well. Oh, okay, so, that's true. 
So I think, you know, it's just, they're, they're athletes and they, and they train every day and they do this all the time. They ride horses every day. It's like us driving a car. We don't even think about it. They just get on a horse and they know how to do it because they've done it all their lives. Right. Right. And um, for us, when we were doing it, I was having to think about every, I think about riding the horse and not falling off and holding the lance and doing it, looking through a slit about this big right when we had the great helms on it was um it was intense but you know i could see if i did that every day for 20 years yeah I'd probably be a lot better at it yeah good point i did i did see real real quick uh there was a video you guys posted on social media and i think mm-hmm. it was it was beth and she was able to with the joust in the ring and hit it perfectly but oh, i yeah. didn't see a, i didn't see a video of you boy doing it Huh. Yeah, I, somehow <laughs> they got corrupted and, oh, and we couldn't file lost. Uh, yeah. Okay, because I was like dead on with those. Yeah, uh, somebody exposed yeah. the film in the dark room. Somebody exposed <laughs> the film. for some reason the lance w- was hard to get into the ring when you're bouncing up and down on a horse. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> I think I'm all about precision, and Boyd was all, the one about the strength. So just brute force, the archery, right. and the spear throwing, and the jousting. So you know, you're right. The the one I put online was the one of me <laughs> ring spearing because that was the only one that I looked like I was knew what I was doing. It was awesome. That was yeah. awesome. Loved it. Well, one of my favorite personal novel, one of my personal favorite novels, and and even the film um, was Umberto Eco's *The Name of the Rose*, and that shares some of the locales in the medieval setting, but the lawless land is an entirely different um, kind of tale. Yeah. And you, you told us you sort of touched on this earlier, but can you tell us, take us through that first um, conversation, that first meeting, um, and how this particular plot came to life in your conversations together? Well, I think, you know, Beth and I, Beth has edited all of my novels. She yeah. knows my style. She likes the same kinds of stories I like. We, I think in storytelling, we both get bored easily. And so we knew we wanted to make this a fast paced, as, as action packed and fast paced as any of my contemporary novels, but just in a, in a different setting. And that's not something that we'd seen a lot of because yeah. we, we had read a lot of historical fiction, but mm-hmm. the, the two kinds of historical thrillers that, that mainly are out there are either a, a mystery, like, like Name of the Rose, that takes place in one place where mm-hmm. you know a monk is trying to solve a murder or something. Yeah. And then the other kind is usually a different view of, of a known historical event. So the Battle of Hastings told through the eyes of a squire, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and our story, we really wanted to do something that we haven't seen in a long time, which um, goes back to the storytelling tropes of Robin Hood or yeah. the Three Musketeers, where yeah. it's just an adventure with, with new characters in in a setting that that we know a little about but um we could you know uh put it put our own spin on and i think actually our book in a way has a lot more of a feel of actually medieval literature because it was the middle ages when the the whole genre of sort of adventure tales and romances was born and so if you go back, one of the books, um, one of the manuscripts in our collection that I've written a, a whole nonfiction book about 
is um, called The Romance of Julien de Trazigny, who was a knight in the 15th century. And during the course of his story, like he, he battles pirates and he goes off and becomes, you know, a squire to the Sultan. And then he turns out he has twin sons and he mistakenly mm-hmm. gets married to somebody else. And so he doesn't know he's a bigamist and actually a lot more <laughs> like weird and kind of incredible stuff happens to him than even Gerard Fox in our book. Wow. But it really does harken back to that sort of the origins. And one of the things Boyd and I often talk about is we're both huge fans of Lee Child. And, you know, his main character was originally based on a knight errant. That, yeah. That's the whole huh. sort of thing about he goes around bringing justice to the people with his might. And that's, you know, that is a medieval trope. That is something you find in medieval novels. So we're just yeah. kind of going back to the source, as it were. Yeah, and, and the knight errant kind of story structure is something that I really like, the, the man with no name with yep. Clint Eastwood, right. they're based on a knight errand where he goes around, travels and, and cleans up the town and then leaves. The Mandalorian is a knight errand. Yeah, that's right. He goes that's around right. the galaxy solving people's problems and then he leaves. And so we what we just wanted to do was we hadn't seen a story of actu- an actual knight errand in the middle ages. And so we just went back to the origin of all these stories and, and wanted to do that kind of um, story since, since we, Beth has the expertise and, and that's my, kind of my storytelling style. You were talking about Lee Child. Uh, he gave you guys a fantastic blurb on, yeah, on the, on the, on the very, front cover. Uh, for, for people who haven't seen it yet, I'll, I'll read it. It says, you know, fantastic. Gerard Fox could be Jack Reacher's ancestor 700 years ago. Highly recommend it. And and it's like spot on. I love that. After after reading it, I was like, "Yep, yeah, spot on." Yeah. But yeah. um, and, and because Beth Beth and I wanted to feature a couple, so that's one thing that's different about our story versus. Although every book, Reacher pairs up with a hot sheriff or a you know <laughs> a beautiful FBI agent or something like that. That's kind of what we did in this story is that he the the damsel in distress ends up doing a lot of the saving of Gerard Fox. So Isabel is is, you know, she she's not as combat oriented, but she solves a lot of their problems, maybe even more than Gerard Fox does at some point. So yeah, he, you know, we, he wanted, makes... we both brought that to the story. I love that he makes those comments so many times to her that he's like, you're like no woman I've ever met before, you know, just her, her analytical thinking, her shrewdness, her, you know, like being able to just size people up immediately and very clever. She was awesome. So, so the lawless land, you know, it takes readers from, from England across the channel to France and, and then uh, Italy. Um, and anyone who follows you on social media would have seen some of the photos you posted on your travels to these locations, including the, my favorite is the two of you sleeping on the train. I don't know. Yes, that's when we do our best thinking. <laughs> that's how we do we plotting. We sleeping. Yes. We were concentrating. Con- right. Concentrating, we were yes, thinking yes. deeply. <laughs> but, but so, you know, with as good as the story reads, do you think you could have written it without visiting those places? It, it wouldn't have been the same story. Um, and we got a lot of the ideas that we had for the story from actually visiting 
the places that we visit and we and we basically followed the the path that our characters take in the story we we actually went in the same order as well okay and um yeah so it luckily beth knows a lot of people like she knows the dean of canterbury cathedral so we we had lunch <laughs> with him and then he took us on a tour of the cathedral that's and, awesome yeah, flex yeah so, and beth, <laughs> you know it, if you ever want to go on a tour of a museum or, or a church or anything, going with Beth is a hundred times better than going <laughs> on your own because she she knows so much interesting information about it. Mm. Opening all those doors, huh, Beth? We'll put a link to goingwithbeth.com at the end. So, uh, for yeah, right. I often hire Boyd to do my PR. It works out really well. Uh, know your strengths, right? Um, so, you know, and we talked a little bit about tropes, but there's also a lot of truth to it, too, that kind of religion and chivalry and honor are kind of deeply infused in, in the uh, culture, particularly, I think, probably, and I'm just guessing, probably in, in, in the wealthier, you know, sections of society. Um, but with a single command from a king militarily, an incursion could, uh, how do you pronounce it? Chevauchet? Uh, Chevauchet. Chevauchet. Mm -hmm. Meaning that, everything in front of you gets wiped out. Yeah, Men, children are killed, women are assaulted, and then probably not even spared the sword themselves. Nothing left alive, everything taken. So you go from one extreme all the way to the other end. How? What was the justification process back there, particularly from the eyes of the church and something like this? Yeah, well, you know, sadly, I don't think it's that much different from what we see today in mm. modern warfare. I mean, I, I know that we all like to think, you know, you use expressions like, well, you know, it, that's so medieval. But when you think of most of the atrocities that you just described, it's not like they're, they're absent from things like, you know, you see the wars in Africa, or you see even yeah. the war right now in Ukraine. It's yeah. not like, you know, that, that, idea of chivalry sort of conquering all happens on an individual level as much as we would like it to, um, to happen. So I think that what we're really trying to tap into, as Boyd said, is like our story is set in the Middle Ages, but there are so many aspects of it that I think are resonant today. So true. And one of them, of course, is the fact that it's set in this post-plague world. And, you know, that's exactly where we all are yeah. right now. Now, that wasn't intentional because we- Crazy coincidence, know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we started this book in 2018, so we, you know, had no idea. But I think those are the kinds of things that people will pick up on. History repeating itself. Unfortunately. Wow. Well, speaking of history repeating itself and things <laughs> keep occurring, um, there's a character in the book who uses his position vis-a-vis -vis the church to enrich himself uh, greatly at the expense of others, um, something that we might call a shakedown in today's world. <laughs> yeah. um, I know there has been a considerable amount of grift in the history of the church, but as I read that, I wondered, is that character based on a specific, specific historical figure? No, we didn't. I mean, there are certainly historical figures that we know of who, um, you know, were kind of guilty of almost everything he actually yeah. did, but more of a composite bad guy um, than based on a particular person. And again, you know, I think that you look at, you know, 
major world religions today. And, you know, despite the fact that there's a lot of good, obviously, that's done with religion, um, you know, the number of scandals continues, you know. So again, not that completely different uh, from what we see in our own book. Yeah, we, we constantly see stories in the news about a uh, some kind of religious figure doing something very similar to what we have our character in the book doing and and you know it it's it's so unfortunate that everything in our book could happen today just with the new technology that we have but right, right. human nature doesn't change yeah right? that's exactly mm -hmm. the story yeah I thought it was interesting and it's keeping with that, that character and don't want to give any spoilers, but um, that he was able to rise to, to that level of power and wealth only through the church. It wasn't happening any other way. Um, and so you can have a King, you can have the wealthy. I don't, I guess there was a merchant class, but I guess it wasn't as, as prevalent as, you know, like middle classes today. But the only way he gets there is through the church. And he recognized that right away and went into it. And I, I wonder if just, you know, the ch people, people like him gravitated towards that because that was their only avenue, their only ladder to, to, to go up. And that's why the church, be, you know, so many horrible things happen in the name of, of yeah. God or in the church because of that. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was that, but also... You know, you had to be born into the nobility yeah. and all different mm. kinds of people are born into the nobility. And unfortunately, they use their power in, you know, ways that were not appropriate either. So, you know, again, everything you see in our society, it's like you see plenty of stories about rich people gone bad. Yeah. <laughs> and plenty of people in contemporary politics who are using their power in inappropriate ways. What? So, you know. No. <laughs> Beth, is it fair to say that that some use the church kind of as a, I don't want to say shortcut to nobility because they were separate from nobility, but they kind of had a similar status in society. They did have a similar status. I would, I would say that, um, you know, in our book, the figure that we're talking about, he actually was born into the minor nobility. So even though, you know, he, 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 he attained a much higher level of power than if he had just, you know, sort of married and stayed in his um, exact genre, we're still talking about the cream of society. Yeah, at the right. Top. Right, it wasn't right. like you could be, I mean, there were occasions when you were like born a peasant, you could make it all the way to Cardinal or something, but that's not the normal story. Mm, that makes sense. Well, Boyd, you have a ton of experience co-writing novels. In fact, you wrote several with the late, uh, late great Clef Clusler. So like you get it, you know how it works. And Beth, you, you co-edited uh, an award-winning book, Book of Beasts, and, and several other ones. Uh, but uh, you've never written fiction before, though, right? It was always no. nonfiction. No. So even, even though you had your brother with all his vast professional commercial writing experience to look to for advice as you guys were writing this, did you, did you have any misgivings about the task that you and he were about to undertake? I think most of my misgivings were the fact that I never thought it would actually get published. <laughs> <laughs> All that work? <laughs> Us three guys had the same feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I, I thought of it as kind of a lark, as a fun project to do with Boyd. And I, I tried to keep in, in mind that I actually do have a job and I have you know a paycheck that comes every other week and that this is really his 
his career in a way that it isn't mine. So I tried to be mindful of his time and, and really be diligent about working with him. Um, but, you know, it really, it's like thinking about it now, the book is out in less than a month. And, you know, Boyd and I did a little video online about opening the crates and yeah. we got mm -hmm. the books out for the first time sure. and I saw it and we did the video and it was super cute. And then we like put down the Zoom and Boyd was like, you never thought this was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It was that obvious, huh, Boyd? It was yeah. that obvious? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think until we see it in a store, she's not going to believe this is really <laughs> happening. I mean, like even though wife. she's written seven or eight books on her own, this is, I guess, a different animal for her. And, uh, you know, I I always had faith in the story because I, I think it's a, a fun story that we don't really there's nothing else like it out there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I agree. The way I put it was to, to our, to our publicist is that if, if you want what, what we're doing, we're the only ones doing it. So that's true. You know, it's, it's who knows, but, but we think it's a fun new kind of story that is different from anything else out there. And so, you know, I, 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 and I had a great time working with Beth on it and we, the way we work is, um, we plot the book together. We talk to each other every day, more than once a day, some, a lot of times, and we plot it. And if I have, if I get stuck, you know, that's a great thing about having a co-author like Beth is if there, it's hard to have writer's block, because if I get stuck, I just call her up and say, Hey, I can't figure out what to do in this. And we talk it through and then I go, okay. And then I go and write it. I write the book and send Beth chapters as we go and she reads it and edits it and then also fixes all my anachronisms <laughs> so if I go uh Isabel is wearing a dress I don't know it's not a dress yeah. it's a dress whatever what heck, right she was wearing a green surcoat over a turtle <laughs> okay you know what you're talking about I don't um, fine whatever yeah. I want to send my work to and, Beth now. <laughs> yeah. And the great thing is Beth, Beth is an expert in the era, but if she, there are some things that she didn't know, but if that, if that's the case, she knows the person who will know. Yeah, right. Awesome. So exactly. Go, oh, I know the, the, uh, the director of the British museum. I'll just email him. Yeah. You know? Okay. Name drop. Deal. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> So other than the fact that you, your reaction working together, uh, what about your family? Uh, how, how excited, what's the excitement level of your family that seeing this yeah. create, two of you guys together? They're, they're really they're thrilled. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My, my wife has been a huge part of this. She went on the, um, the, the research trip that we did to Europe and um, she's also one of my first editors so she's intimately involved in it and and our siblings are excited about it and and my boyfriend read it as soon as we finished it and offered his commentary as well and he's really made a lot of it possible for me because you know i already have a full time job yeah <laughs> so all right this is sort of like on top of it and then i'm you know also writing scholarly works myself that are also outside of my job and mm. He's just been very good about like, okay, here's another cup of tea or wow, you've been on the phone with Boyd for three hours. That's 
Well, I, I was actually more curious about the siblings. I have five siblings myself, and um, I would get five different reactions from the five. <laughs> I was just curious. <laughs> we we have had a number of people outside mm. of our family go, you can write with your sister? Yeah, you're not <laughs> killing each other? Brother? How is that going? <laughs> I mean, they're very dubious, like <laughs> thinking that we're, we're about to kill each other, but we work great together. We've We've had plenty of trips other than been our research trips together right. and yeah and, you know we've been best friends all of our lives so it's been a very smooth process oh good and i think for our like our older siblings our older brother is um an engineer which is what boyd is trained in as well but i remember way back when when i got the job at the getty he was like Oh my God, you got a job as an art historian. <laughs> I thought I was going to have to support you for the rest of my life. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I think that like, this is just an outgrowth of, of all of that. And I, I think our siblings aren't really um, surprised that we're writing a book together. At oh, all. that's good. And they're just, they're incredibly supportive and they're just like so excited. Are all the Morrisons uh, PhDs? <laughs> we have a lot of, very educated people you could just say yes <laughs> or, or you could look at the other way and say you know there's a lot of people just didn't know what they wanted to be in life and just stayed in school until i figured mm -hmm. it out so. <laughs> <laughs> although i don't exactly. use my phd anymore yeah <laughs> i know I gave look, that up. I, i'm not doing surgery anymore and here i am doing a podcast so yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. we just didn't well, know what we wanted to do when we grew up yeah exactly <laughs> Well, and Boyd's wife is a is an actual doctor, like a real doctor. Not like and so we, when we travel together, we always joke because, you know, every once in a while, someone will like get on the plane and have, you know, some kind of medical problem. And, and they're like, is there is there a doctor in the house? And, you know, Boyd will, Boyd will turn to Randy and be like, uh, do you want to get this one? Oh or should I? <laughs> yeah, I, I have five I, I times. My wife is taking care of people five times on when we've been traveling. I didn't realize how many times people got called on planes for that's for crazy. I've never been called on a plane. I've never been called on a plane. Not once. And I travel constantly. Yeah. Not once. Wow. So I'm, no, it's happened five times. Maybe it's bad luck. On our that's plane. crazy. Probably, yeah. Um, you cannot really talk about middle-aged Europe in the 1300s without confronting the plague. I mean, the, the, just front and center. Um, I mean, when a disease wipes out a pretty much a quarter of the population or more. Um, but my curiosity is more is, how did the illness affect the numbers of the elite and the wealthy versus the poorer classes? Is there any information on how it affected the two? Because you know everything was available to the upper class when very little was available. You know, from medical care to diet to everything else. How how did that disease affect those two? Because it kind of is the ending of that at the start of your book. Yeah, I mean, it certainly affected um, the nobility um, quite heavily. Mm. I don't know that we have any hard numbers on the distinctions between the nobility and the yeomanry or the peasantry, but I would imagine in general, the nobility ended up doing slightly better, um, but not maybe for the reasons that everybody would think of um, immediately. I think the main reason that the nobility would have done better was because about the spaces they lived in. So first of all, there weren't 10 people living in a single room. Right. So in terms of infecting other people, 
Um, you're not, you know, it's just like today, right? That that's right. where quarantine comes from is right. staying away from right. space work. Um, but the other thing is the nobility lived in homes that did not, that had walls that were not nearly as permeable as the peasantry. Right. So the peasantry uh, tended to live in like wattle and daub kind of homes that mm -hmm. had a timber frame, but the, the walls were fairly open to the outside. And since we know that plague was spread uh, through rats and the fleas that go on rats, then you can imagine that they could go through those walls really readily. Now, if you're in the second floor of a stone castle, you're just not gonna have as many rats sort of scurrying around the floors. Right. So that there, I think there was that distinction, but there certainly were kings and queens and princesses who died of the plague um, that are noted in the historical record. Mm. And we even feature that in the, the King of France, his right. first wife died of the plague. And right. so that played into the story a bit, but the, I believe the, the, the upper echelons of the church were mostly protected because they were able to retreat into their, you know, their, their estates and their, the, the, they could sequester themselves from, from the poor people who were getting the plague. So, so I right. think in that way, the, the upper tiers of society were more protected. Although I think Pope Cleo actually lost like 30% of his cardinals at one point in time too. So really, yeah. It really depended on how involved with the people those particular right. religious figures <laughs> yeah. were. And so when you do look at it, the records of parish priests dying was huge, huge. because of course they were going into all the infected <clears throat> homes to give people right. last rites if they if if they were sort of good priests as it were but there were a lot who you know ran away as boyd said and sort of went out into the country and and waited for the for the waves to go over them mm. so and and know, I, as, I, no i'm sorry go ahead no i just was gonna say it's usually on a person-by-person -person basis, just like today. Yeah. I, I found it interesting, too, how they, um, you had one scene where Gerard was trying to save his father, and he was like, you know, there were people who were making these potions, and they were preying on on people's, you know, you know, just spending all this money and really not getting anything, or the leeches and, and whatnot, just, you know, just well, interesting really stuff. hasn't changed in 600 years. I would say, no. opportunities, opportunities even then, yeah. Looking that was like the for, first six months of, of this last one. Yeah. Years, people, I mean, I saw somebody, you know, espousing drinking your own urine to ward off COVID. I'm like, this, that could <laughs> yeah, that, did, that didn't work. That didn't work, boy. Crystal got it. Didn't work. Maybe you should try again. <laughs> Don't say that. You're a doctor. <laughs> I'll let Boyd take that one. <laughs> Boyd, I want you to answer this question first, just because of your sister's background. But then Beth, um, I want to hear. And she can correct me. Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear her answer as well. But as you immerse yourself in this period, um, you no doubt got a richer picture of the realities of life in the 14th century than, for instance, the films we've all seen and, and most of the books we've read. Um what details did you uncover that surprised, or if you prefer, horrified you the most? Well, one of the things I did I just didn't know is that most people, especially non-nobility or, or upper echelons of the church, didn't sleep in a bed. Just something very simple like that. They just slept on rushes on a floor. 
I didn't know that. I, I just, that was, you know, just a simple thing as you're writing, they got into bed. No, they didn't. All they, <laughs> they, they just sprinkled some, some rushes on the floor and that's what they slept on. I had no idea. The other interesting thing, we, we do feature a duel in yeah. the book. And in our research, uh, we found out that duels uh, um, were conducted in complete silence. Um, yeah, I didn't know that. You see on movies and uh, the, the duels that, that are actually combat to the death for a judicial reason, a judicial yeah. duel or trial by combat. Right. Um, the, the, there were many announcements before the duel started. And unlike in a jousting tournament where everybody's cheering their favorite knights on and it's very exciting and happy occasion, a duel to the death is a very solemn occasion for a very important purpose. And so one of the announcements that the Herald made before a duel was that everybody must be completely silenced uh, under pain of death. If you may, if you spoke, if you laughed, if you did anything, you could be put to death by order of the king. And so a duel was conducted in complete silence, which made sense to me once I understood that, but I had no idea because that's not what we see in popular culture. That's cool. Yeah, I was fascinated by that scene. By you, Beth, was there anything that... that yes, <laughs> there, there was a lot of things that I did not know about daily life in the 14th century. You know, when I sort of embarked on it, I'm like, I'm a trained medievalist. I've been doing this for 30 years. And then Boyd <laughs> was like, so what would they have paid for a toll in Canterbury in 1351? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of research um, that had to happen. But one of the most interesting things that I had to research um, that, of course, I'd never run into in my <clears throat> academic work was how did they curse in the Middle Ages? Um, because that was something we had to have people making exclamations and sort of calling each other names and stuff. And one of my favorite things is I'd never really thought about it, but we call them oaths, right? Like, you know, when you're talking about cursing, another word is, and, and that's exactly where it originated was from the Middle Ages because the most common oath you would talk about in the Middle Ages was something that involved God. And it's really funny. You'd say like, by God's fingernails. And it's like, okay, I didn't know that. But that's actually what they did was they swore an oath by some part of God's body, by God's toes or something. So I thought wow. that was, you know, kind of interesting. And then you were mentioning movies. Um, one of my big pet peeves about every medieval movie, I don't know why, but they shoot it in this sort of like pseudo black and white where everything is really washed out. Yeah. So if you have that in mind, I can tell you the Middle Ages was in color too, just <laughs> FYI. <laughs> oh, and, and one of the things that, that I didn't know when we went to churches is we see churches now that they're very um, monochromatic, in, especially inside. Right. And apparently during the Middle Ages, they would paint the the interior very colorful. Um, they would have what, what are those things called? The, the, the sculptures, Beth? Like the tympana? The, the things on the columns and and like the Reynard. What were was oh, that? The what capitals. Is, capitals. 
they would paint those in very vibrant colors. And the reason is because most people who would come into the church, this is like their, their daily or weekly entertainment. And so, ah. you know, seeing these stained glass, glass windows and the colorful um, paintings and stuff were kind of their, 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 their entertainment for the week. And so I did, I had no idea that, that, but, but since, you know, in the 600 years since then, it's all faded and hasn't been repainted. But, yeah. And it was part of like a, an expression of wealth too, because right. for people in the middle ages, yes, there's grass and trees and everything, but in terms of um, applied color, only the nobility could afford to wear outfits that were actually different colors and the same thing when you went into the cathedral that was the most colorful sort of man-made experience that anyone would have had in the middle ages because you have like boyd said the painted columns the painted capitals you have stained glass windows you have altar cloths in 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 rich colors hmm. you have all these you know illuminated manuscripts and so it was an expression color was kind of an expression of wealth Oh, this is fascinating, man. <laughs> well, uh, so looking back, so I'm going to start with Beth. So looking back on this experience, the writing, the traveling, was there anything you wish you would have done differently? I wish I would have started doing social media earlier. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you don't. No, you lost no, your you, mind. Yes. <laughs> I, I have not traditionally done social media and it's been a big learning curve and I think uh, I put it off to the last possible uh, me second. Too. And now I'm getting into it and I'm enjoying doing the videos and the and everything, but it, it did take me a while to get up on that. But um, I, you know... I would say like, I wish Boyd and I would have done this 10 years ago, but I don't think we would have brought the depth to it that we have now. And so I think it was kind of perfect timing. Hmm. Yeah. And, and looking back on the story, I don't, I don't think there's anything we would change about the story. There's definitely things we want to do in the next story that are different and, and um, you know, that, that we want to explore, but, but for the, the lawless land, I, I think it's the story we wanted to tell. Beautiful. So you, you, he teased, though. He teased. Mm -hmm. what, what, the second story? What? <laughs> what? Yes, we are. Oh. We uh, took another research trip last fall to Italy and Greece. Oh. So, yeah, we, we actually, the whole point <laughs> of doing these books <laughs> just so that we get to do a research trip right off. In, Europe, <laughs> in a different place. So, yes. <laughs> You're doing so, it right. You're doing it yeah, right. So, where, where did you where did you travel in Italy? Uh, we went to Siena, Florence, and Venice, and then we went to the island of Rhodes in Greece. Okay. Oh God, that sounds beautiful. And and you know one of the cool things about both the first story and the second story is that almost every place that we feature in the story, at least the major locations, you can still go visit. 670 years later and they're very similar to how they would have looked in 1351 and so awesome. it's very cool that yeah. when we were there planning an action scene or planning where where people are in the setting it it really you can see it now that it's not that different from when it, uh what it was back then so, so one more just one follow-up so is it a is it a gerard Fox, 
yes. two or is it other characters yeah. okay no awesome. no gerard fox will will continue following his adventures and and see what he gets up to next um, you might have created a whole new genre that just pops out of this thing so you might be the godmother godfather of historical <laughs> see more stories like this yeah. both of you yeah. guys both of you guys being Reacher fans, have you thought about like putting an Easter egg, like having like I don't know, having him drink coffee every day? <laughs> or uh, I don't know. If you know great, 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 great. He doesn't wear a sundial because he always knows the time. Or <laughs> but we have thought about, you know, uh, I, I do have a contemporary character that I haven't written a story about him named Tyler Locke for a while. Mm. But I thought if I ever do another Tyler Locke book, it might be fun for him to discover the manuscript. Oh crap! Yeah, you're talking. Yeah, so that there would be a, a link between them. See, I love I stuff know, like who, that. Who knows? He, Gerard Fox, really could be the ancestor of Reacher. He's a big <laughs> guy for his era, and that'd be uh, neat. You know, so we're gonna have to live to be 200 years old to finish all these books. Well, <laughs> we should tell Lee Child that he should have in his next novel have Jack Reacher do that, like that online genealogy thing yeah, and ancestry. find out. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a riot. Yeah. Well, you guys, congratulations on surviving the main portion of our interview. Thank Cheers. Beth, take a yeah. big old swig because this is what it gets down and dirty here. <laughs> ready for it. Yeah, this is where she Let me says she's thing. ready for this. Yeah. There is no possible way to be ready for this you have no idea the questions we're going to ask you oh, all right <laughs> so boyd he's he, you see maury trembling and he's sweating because he knows what's coming <laughs> all right this is my first question and uh hmm i'm gonna let beth answer this one if you Ooh. were to meet one period correct night from monty python <laughs> in the search for the holy grail who do you choose and why um can i meet the rabbit is that <laughs> the killer rabbit? The killer killer rabbit. rabbit. I want to meet the killer rabbit because I want to That's try just out my different lines and then I'll just be like, I'll say the perfect thing because I can speak in 14th century old French and the rabbit will be completely like, let me go past just like the first one. And then Boyd comes up. Oh, <laughs> run away, run away. I'll have the holy hand grenade. So <laughs> blue, look at no the bones. Red. Look at the bones. <laughs> the bones all right all right so so beth probably knows this answer so i'm going to ask boyd where did the name black plague come from well one of the things we learned that i learned beth knew already was mm. that it wasn't called the black plague in 1351 it That's was right. called either the great mortality or the pestilence mm -hmm. and so the, so I don't know because they didn't call it the Black Plague at that time. It, it, that name only came later, and I'm not sure when it did. Okay. Can I Beth, can I tell? Yes, yeah. please. <laughs> I knew Beth would know. Yeah. <laughs> so I think if I remember correctly, it was something much later, as Boyd said. I think it might have been 16th or even 17th century. And if I remember, it was originally called the Black Death in a Swedish chronicle. So I think it actually came from Sweden, but now you guys can all look it up on Wikipedia and tell me I'm wrong. So the Black Plague was part of the visible uh, response to the actual disease itself. And so the lymph nodes right. would often right. swell and turn black. Yes. Right. Thus, when you died, you had these large blackened splotches called the Black Death. But yeah, yeah. It was, you're, you're right. It was years and years and years later. 
All right. Beth may or may not know this. So I'm going to throw this out to the duo here. Many people don't know that there was another natural disaster in Europe about 30 years previous to the plague outbreak, which proved to be as potent or even more potent of a killer, wiping out 30 or more percent of the population on that continent at that, that moment. Do either of <laughs> you know what, what actually occurred? Form of a question, Beth. Of a question. <laughs> I got in first. Famine. Yes. The Great Famine. The Great Famine. And yep. actually, that played a role in the Black Death. Um, I read an um, epidemiology report, actually. There's a lot of research happening right now in the Black Death, I think spurred partially by interest um, given through the COVID years. Right. And um, what's really interesting is they said that one of the reasons, because one of the questions has always been like, well, we still have bubonic plague today. Why was it so bad in the Middle Ages? And one of the reasons they think is because the um, the adults who suffered through the Black Plague, they were children during the Great Famine. And so they never got the kind of nutrients and mm. it actually affected their health lifelong and they were much more susceptible to plague. Interesting. Um, because yeah. of the Great Famine having been only like 30 years ahead of, yeah. ahead of them. My wife just diagnosed uh, bubonic plague about eight or nine years ago in Colorado. It was one of the first uh, in, in like over a decade. So it's- Was still, it a prairie dog? No, it was a dead squirrel. Ah. Uh -huh. um, what? One of the other epidemiological, I'm going to throw this out there only because I remember it from school and I don't know why, is that <laughs> people were uh, beginning to move into city centers. And so the proximity of the population with the rat infestation uh, created a, a much more potent vector from the animals because people were living in tighter and tighter communities. And so that's certainly true. And that's why we see the bad bubonic plague outbreaks in the 19th century were in San Francisco and India for those right. very reasons. Right, right, right. Who, who says you can't learn anything on our show? I know. <laughs> um, I remember something from I mean, school. Well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't get any of it. That stops now. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, Thank God. My, my first question, I guess there's a little bit of learning here, but then after that, it goes downhill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> what was the primary food staple of peasants in medieval times? Bread. Um, the peasants didn't eat a lot of meat. Um, it just was too expensive. So what they ate um, were these things called, um, it was pottage bread, essentially, pottage. which is a kind of bread that has legumes in it, like peas and whatnot, that actually gave them the protein. Mm. See, now, now you're correct. What I heard or what I read was that barley, barley was the, the, the staple and then pottage was kind of like the upper crust of the, of the peasants <laughs> that have the pottage. The upper uh, crust. Frozen, frozen banquet meals. Yeah. Oh, I just picture these people chewing like barley. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, let's use that as a launching point to this book is so successful and every, there's such a demand for it that Beth and Boyd decide to open up a medieval themed restaurant complete with reenactments and everything but authentic reenactments quiet during the duels <laughs> but what is the restaurant called it is called the the sword and bread <laughs> the 
Come on, that's pathetic. Come on, Sword and Barley. Sword and Barley. I like the fox and the unicorn. Fox and the unicorn. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. I yeah. think if we get that, rich, yeah. we're just going to buy medieval times and let them do their thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going to be so rich, we can just buy them. live results. Yes. Yeah, but you got to rebrand but, it. But, Beth, but, and but, Boyd's, but Beth and Boyd's medieval times. Yeah, <laughs> Dolly Parton's. You know. <laughs> but the peasants, the peasants can't eat meat, so there's no chicken. Yeah. Right. Well, everybody will be knighted on entering <laughs> so they can have meat when they get in. Be quiet during the duel or we will kill you. To the death. <laughs> to the death. My my final question. Um, good news. After reading this book, it is optioned by none other than the Xena Warrior Princess herself for a million dollars. But the catch is she wants to call the film The Lucy Lawless Land. <laughs> is what? that a deal is that a deal breaker for seven figures we went downhill can you tell us what money is on the table yeah, yeah seven figures it's seven figures a million bucks a million bucks bring it on bring it on yeah <laughs> where do i sign i love More. it the lucy lawless the lucy lawless <laughs> All right, that went, that's that the went. name of the restaurant. Yes, <laughs> Lucy. <laughs> Lucy Lawless Land. That's, that's trademarked already. Actually, that completely <laughs> reminds me of something. An, an, no, stop. no, 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 stop, stop, stop. Complete stop. <laughs> aside, on um, there's an SNL skit where Lucy Lawless hosts, and she does a Stevie Nicks owns a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> oh my god! It is one of the best skits you'll ever see. So <laughs> make sure you check that out. Hmm. <laughs> All right, get your uh, Jeopardy buzzers. Boyd, Beth. And Boyd is actually a Jeopardy champion. I, I, I don't know. know. I know. I know. We know. We know. Many, I know. You know. We had two on the show. Beth was we know. there. She was in the audience. I was in the audience learning how to use the buzzer. So I'm ready. All right. Ready? <laughs> ready. So uh, Mike, Mike and Sean, you guys could be the judge of who puts their thumb down the quickest. All right. Here's the Boyd clue. Boyd has to put it up first. Yeah. <laughs> this three-part this three part panel. Shh, listen, listen, listen. I'm not Alex Trebek. This three-part panel was common form for altarpieces and medieval art. Beth. Triptych. No, she has to say, what is triptych? Oh. <laughs> oh. No, she gets a pass the first time. Alex, all right, all right. break the first time. All right. Uh, um, 100 points, yeah. Beth. All right, this is for uh, 200 points. Here's the clue. A 2012 poll by Britain's National Army Museum voted this man, born in 1732, as the nation's greatest military enemy. I'll read it again. A 2000. Oh, Beth. George Washington. Oh, Beth. Oh, Beth rang in first, and you didn't form any questions. <laughs> For 200 points, Beth. What is the answer? Who is? Napoleon? No. 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 What was your answer? Who is George Washington? That's right. right. Oh. Yes. Very yeah, good. That Very is good. Not a medieval question. I know. I, I know. <laughs> I know. All right. So that was uh, you. You both that was have. 200 that was two hundred points. So Beth, you have uh, one hundred. Boyd, you have two hundred. Triple Jeopardy. Here we go. This is Triple Jeopardy. This is for a thousand. You win this. You get it. Here's the clue. Very serious. This podcast has three co-hosts and is considered a must-stop for authors on book tour. Uh, <laughs> the crew review. 
What is oh, this? Yes. <laughs> she corrected herself. Judges? Oh, we're good. She wins. Go. Judges. <laughs> Beth wins. Morrison wins. Uh, you Morrison don't know how wins. sweet that says, is. The number of times I've lost to Boyd over the years is a <laughs> This is retribution for all those times. Our, our judge just said Morrison wins. Morrison, we don't know, <laughs> Morrison, we don't know which Morrison one. family wins. Dr. Morrison. <laughs> Dr. Morrison. Even more Ah, uh, Fantastic. You guys win. That was well, awesome. Hey, congratulations, you two. You guys, this was a fantastic read. Anybody that loves this period is going to fall in love with this. This is a lot of fun. I loved it. A little educational for people who like history. Uh, but both of you really collaborated beautifully on this. You can't tell that this was a collaboration. It looks like, you know, a continual story throughout. So uh, congratulations on uh, making this a real hit. We can't wait to see how the uh, rest of the public finds uh, this book for you. And then uh, apparently there's a number two in the world. Yes. Yeah. We're excited right. about that too. All yeah, right. this is this is thriller through yeah, and through. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Loved it. So Thank congratulations you. to you both. Thanks for coming on the episode. Loved it. And I uh, can't wait to see how this does and, and see you maybe for the next one, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah. Congrats. Our Boys and Lawless Land. Order it now. Yes. Boys. Yes. Yes, sir. The Lawless Land by Boyd and Beth Morrison. Awesome. Ooh, this was fun piece. Talking about knights and damsels in distress. Anybody who likes historical fiction is going to love this book. And we found out there is a number two coming out. You did. Fantastic interview. Beth is a complete natural at this. Don't tell me she's a first-time fictional author. Nope. And let's raise a toast to this fantastic duo and to this fantastic trio. And welcome back. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Big out. One, two, three, go. See ya. Crack. <laughs> there you go. Oh my god. I win. You're going to hell. I win. <laughs> Just going to hell. That's all there is to I win. You know what Nancy would be doing if she were alive today. I don't get it. Kicking the lid. Ronnie. <laughs> all right. Hey, whatever. I'd be fired. That would be fine. Yeah. Yeah, but it'd be a hell of a way to go out. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Oh, sorry. All right. <clears throat> well, now I can't think. <laughs> I'm wearing chainmail next episode. <laughs> Crotchless chainmail. Crot- <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> it covers your crotch? Crotchless. Oh, I mean, that's the way you go, right? What do they call that, though? Codpiece. Not going Dutch. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> What was a commando? I guess you'd be going. You're not commando. What are you going? You're going night? Going night? Going nighty night? I'm going night. Fantastic period historical piece. If you like chain mail, swords, damsels in distress, this could be your book. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Swords. (laughs) You got me at swords. I was like, that's pretty good. Chain mail. Chain mail. Sword. Sword. Shades of.
sword fighting. Oh, now we're talking what? about a whole different what? genre. <laughs> Tummy sticks. <laughs> Three-way sword fighting. Here we G- go. Oh, this is G-rated. Okay. Where's so Nancy like, Reagan? With- Where's Nancy? That's what you want, Chris. I blame you. Like the groove until you. Oh my gosh! We had a, we had the adult handle on this show until you. No, and I come back. All right, all right. You got to bring some stupid to the show. All right. Well, you're the man. Here we yeah, go. I know. Three, two, and meow.